If you have your Bible, go ahead and open those if you would. It's always a joy and privilege to be here with you all. I'm going to kind of do a scripture reading a little bit different this morning. Uh, I'm actually going to ask you to put your finger in four different passages, so I'll give you some time to go ahead and flip to all of these. We're going to be reading out of Daniel 9, Exodus 12, Zechariah 9, and also in John chapter 12. So put your one finger in Exodus 12, another one in Daniel 9, Zechariah 9, and also in John chapter 12. And I'm sure you'll ask me why all of these different passages. And this week, it was, um, if, you know, if you know my personality, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little bit meticulous about things. Um, shocker, I know. Um, but when it comes to my preparation, you, by Wednesday I write it, and Thursday I pretty much finalize it, and then Friday and Saturday I kind of go over and practice it, and Sunday I give it. But Friday morning, I just got into the text in John chapter 12, and I just saw so much more to what's really going on at the triumphal entry. We... We take that story of Palm Sunday for granted in a lot of ways, but what it is, it's a convergence of three different theological truths all in one story. We see in the story of the triumphal entry, I'm, I'm preaching, I should stop, but anyways, I don't want to be up here too long for the scripture reading, but it's the convergence of Jesus being the Passover lamb, him being the Messiah, him being their king. And all three of these combine in one event. So I'm going to begin with Exodus chapter 12, with the story of Passover, and then we will read all the way through John 12. Not all the books, but in moving. Speak to all the congregation, this is Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month of Nisan, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, one year old. And you may take it away from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it away until the fourteenth day of the same month of Nisan. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy sevens, or seventy weeks, have been declared for your people in your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, and it will be built again with plaza and moats, even in times of distress. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And where we are today in John chapter 12, verse 12, this is where the Messiah, the Passover lamb, and the king come together in one event. John 12, 12. On the next day. The large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, he sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples 
did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. And for this reason also the people went and met him. Because they were heard that he had performed this sign, verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, What are we doing? You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Father, that is my prayer this morning, that we would desire you. Lord, that we would not worry about the other ancillary issues that are inconsequential to your glory and to your fame and to your praise. Lord, I pray that we would lift up our eyes, lift up our hearts, lift up our voices to praise you. And I pray your word would change our lives this morning. Bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I imagine it's always a bit nerve-wracking when a preacher does four different passages for scripture reading. Uh, don't worry, we won't be here for four hours, I promise. But it is going to be a little bit packed today as far as content and what we will discuss. And today I really titled my sermon, Worshipping Our King. Worshipping Our King. We have a king, a ruler over our life, who has dominion over all our life. And he is a perfect king. A king who is love, who sees us, who knows us. Your King, Jesus, knows your inner thoughts, your insecurities, your faults, and your mistakes. Your King knows you. He forgives you, He loves you, and He asks us to worship. What does that look like? That is our quest today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in John chapter 12. The Gospel of John as you may know, is very unique amongst the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three gospels are called the synoptic gospels, meaning that they see the ministry of Jesus through the same so-called lens. But the gospel of John is very different. In a sense, the gospel of John is very simple in language, but very profound and theological in its implications. The gospel of John is very chronological. The reason we know Jesus' ministry was three years was basically based on the Gospel of John itself and his references to the feast throughout the Gospel itself. And John is also very theological. It centers on answering the question, who is Jesus? And it would take me uh, years to really just talk about all of, to answer that question of who is Jesus. And it will take me years because I've been in the Gospel of John for about a year now, so I'm halfway through. Okay. But we know so far that Jesus is Yahweh, I am, Ego Amy, that he is Jehovah. We know that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is King, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Son of Man, and that He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
Two weeks ago, we looked at part two of the story of Lazarus rising from the dead, and we saw three different responses to that miracle. We saw the response of the crowds of the Pharisees and of a guy named Caiaphas. And it really taught us a lesson of how we should respond when God is working in our lives. God is always working in our lives. Can I get an amen to that one? The question is not if God is working, but if He is working. The question is, how will we respond? Will we respond with rejecting what He is doing with a misapplication of His truth? Or will we trust Him more? Then last week we saw part three of the story of Lazarus rising from the dead. And we saw Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And and we just see a picture of their absolute delight and their gratitude for what Jesus has done. Being grateful in the present boils down to three things. It is to learn from the past, to look forward to the future promises that God grants to us, and to let others know of Jesus. And as stated last week, John 11.55 really begins part two to the Gospel of John. So we have the proof of the Christ in John, 11, John chapter 1 verse through John chapter 11 verse 55. That is the proof of the Christ. And then we have John 11.55 to the end of the Gospel is the presentation of the Christ. So where do we pick up today? Where are we in the story of John? We are in Passion Week. Today's passage is the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Not the car, but the month of Nisan. Now why is that significance that today we pick up in the 10th day of the month of Nisan? It is wildly important, and I will unpack for that in just a moment, But Jesus is four days away from the upper room, and he is five days away from being crucified. And today is his Jewish earthly coronation service. Today they declare Jesus to be their king, but with strings attached. They don't just declare him to be king, to serve him without Motivation without strings attached, but we today, they crown him to be their king, but they have a lack of pure motives, and we will see those in our passage. And the people of Israel accept him as their king, but with strings and with, without pure motives. This idea of a king is difficult for us to really grasp. We live in a democracy with freedom of speech, we have the right in our country to choose our ruler and then to go on Facebook and talk about how terrible they are or how great they are, okay? So, <laughs> so I mean, that's like all my Facebook feed is, and especially in election years, how terrible or how great our elected officials are. Anybody else notice that? So, but we have that freedom to choose our ruler and to go on Facebook and have the freedom of speech to bash them or to lift them up. So this idea of a king is kind of foreign to us. But when I think of a king or I think of royalty, I don't think of Queen Elizabeth or I don't think of King Louis XVI or Charlemagne. When I think of a king, I think of Aragon. Anybody know what that is? The Lord of the Rings. When I was in high school, the Lord of the Rings movies were all... The rage, they were hot, so to speak. And quite recently, I watched uh, all three of the movies, and it took me a solid month to finish them, because they are very, very long. 
But what do you see? You see this theme in each of these movies, this theme of kingship, and you see each character's struggle to relate to the king, which is Aragorn, right? Now, is it Aragorn or Aragorn? Can anybody say that? Okay, I've got a couple of shoulder shrugs on that one. But we see different characters struggle to relate to their king. Boromir is disrespectful. Legolas is his peer. The dwarf Gimli is the grumbly follower, grumbling for food and for rest. We have Lord Elrond, who is the elf that is doubtful to Aragorn's competence. We have Théoden, who is dismissive. We have Frodo, who is reverent and unsure. But if you remember the last movie, at the very end, what happens? They place the crown upon Aragorn's head, and what does everything? What does everybody do? They bow and worship. Things come full circle. Today, I want things to come full circle. Some of us here today are Boromir, who are dismissive to Jesus' rule in our life, to really submit to him. Some of us are Theoden, challenging his authority in our lives. Some of us are Legolas, who view Jesus as a peer, or as a buddy, or as a teddy bear in the sky, as, as our servant. Some of us see Jesus as Gimli, that we grumble over Jesus' lack of provision in our life. Some of us see Jesus as Lord Elrond, that Jesus is really competent to rule my life. But most of us here today are Frodo. We are reverent for the position of Jesus as our King. But we have very little idea of what it means to bow and to worship and to serve Him as our ruler. So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, if you already opened those today, we'll begin in verse 12. And originally speaking, I planned to go from verse 12 to verse 36 in John chapter 12. But as I kind of unpacked this text, I realized that there's just so much going on here that we fail to even realize. And it was even, as I said, Friday morning. Okay, I'm, I'm done with my sermon by Friday morning. It's, it's finished. It's, 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 it's done. I just have to edit it and practice a little bit. I woke up Friday morning and it was just like, just this, this this flood of just deeper theological truths were coming to my mind and I just could not help myself but add more to it. So today is really the the story of two sermons. We're going to see kind of the theological implications of the triumphal entry. Then we're going to see the practical implications of Jesus being our King. Jesus, in this passage, proves to be the Lamb of God, proves to be the Messiah, and He proves to be the King over all. Notice the text with me. John 12, verse 12. On the next day, if you have your pen, I would highly recommend that you circle that, those four words, on the next day. On the next day, the crowd, large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... They took branches of palm trees, notice that, and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. They're still confused, even though they've been living with Jesus for three years. They still don't get it. 
But when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered these things were written of him and they had, that they had done these things to him, so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him for this reason. Also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. For a Jew, this event is so magnificent and so significant. And we fail oftentimes because we are Americans and we live in air conditioning, praise the Lord for it, and we live 2,000 years after the time period of Christ. We fail to really understand the magnitude that, of Jesus riding in a colt of a donkey to an ethnic Jew in the first century. They know full well what this means. Notice what it says in verse 13. It says, even the king of Israel. They know exactly what Jesus is proclaiming to be. But even today... Even as of Friday morning, I fail to really understand the full magnitude of this event. Because in this event, this one day, on the next day, Jesus proclaims, in addition to being king, that he is the Passover lamb and that he is the Messiah. On the next day, what day is it? It's the tenth day of the month of Nisan of their Jewish calendar month called Nisan. Now, why is that significant? Exodus chapter 12 says this. We read it earlier, and I'm going to reread it. This is why it is significant. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth month of Nisan, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be unblemished. A year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it aside until the fourteenth day of Nisan. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Jesus rides in on a colt of a donkey. Why on the tenth day of Nisan? He is proclaiming to the nation of Israel that he is the Passover lamb, that he's setting himself aside. Because what happens in four days? He is crucified as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is setting Himself aside. And in four days, He is crucified for the sins of the entire world. So that God the Father would pass over the doorposts of our sinful souls. He is not just proclaiming Himself to be King, but that He is the Passover Lamb. And what does it say about the Passover Lamb? That it must be without blemish. And what do we know about Jesus? He was without blemish. He was without sin. For if He had any sin, He could not pay for the sins of the world. But since He was sinless, He was able to pay for our sin, previous, currently, and forever committed, so that the Father would pass over the doorposts of our sinful souls. He is proclaiming Himself to be the Passover Lamb, and He proves to be it, fulfilling John chapter 1, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So in this one passage, He proves to be the Lamb, but He also proves to be Messiah, the Prince. If you have your Bible, turn in those to Daniel 9. Now, if I'm 
really transparent. Daniel 9, the amount of time that I'm going to spend on Daniel 9 and the implications to Palm Sunday is, is really uh, not fair to Daniel 9, okay? Because a, a year worth of sermons can be preached on just these four verses. But I'm just going to show you its implication for the triumphal entry. This is in Daniel 9, verse 24. It says, 70 weeks, or quite literally in the Hebrew, 70 sevens, have been de- decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah Prince, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, notice what it says. It says that after seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, we know those sevens to be years. So, seven sevens of years and sixty-two sevens of years. You add those up. So, seven times seven is forty-nine years, and then sixty-two times seven is four hundred and thirty-four years. I didn't do that just in my head. I had them pre-calculated. I cheated. Okay. So, I should have... You all have been so impressed if I would have done it in my head. Anyway. So, you combine that together, and you have four hundred and eighty-three years. So Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 that the Messiah will be in Jerusalem, that the Messiah Prince will be there in 483 years. So, but when do the 483 years start clicking? When does the clock start ticking? It says in verse 25, it says, You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be 483 years. So when when does the clock start ticking on the 483 years? It begins when a decree goes out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. When did that happen? We know when that happened. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. King Artaxerxes gives to Nehemiah his cupbearer, the, the permission in the decree to go back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the city of the, to rebuild the city and its walls. So, from that moment of Nehemiah chapter two, from that moment, four hundred eighty-three years later, the Jews are expecting the Messiah, the Prince, to come in to the city. But. That decree went out in 445 B.C. If you add 445 B.C., and then then it's kind of wonky the way you have to do B.C. and A.D., and then you add 483 years, that spits you out at 38 A.D. Is that correct, mathematicians in the room? So, but we know that Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem in 38 A.D. He came into Jerusalem in 33 A.D. So was Daniel wrong? If you want more information on this, this is a rabbit trail, go on Google and type in 70 weeks of Daniel and a sermon on YouTube by this guy named Tommy Nelson will pop up and you should read that if you want like super nerd level of information on this passage. Because it's just really magnificent. But to me, it seems that Daniel was wrong, that he's five years late. But what we do not know is that the Jewish calendar is not 365 days, it's only 360 days. And a guy named Robert Anderson wrote a book called The Coming Prince. 
And he calculated that Jesus, when you factor all this together, from the moment that the decree went out in Nehemiah chapter 2, 483 years later, that Jesus arrives on the exact day predicted in Daniel chapter 9, into the city of Jerusalem, proving himself not only to be the Passover lamb, but to be the Messiah of all. On the next day, think about how important those four words are. Because with those four words tells you so much about who Jesus truly is. Think about this. Jesus' name is the Hebrew name of Joshua. It's a common name in this culture. So how do they know that this guy named Joshua, not that guy named Joshua, is truly who he says he is? That he is the Messiah, that he is the Passover Lamb, and that he is the King. The way they know it is that to the exact day Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus arrives on the perfect day in the perfect year. And he arrives in the perfect way to proclaim himself to be their king. If you notice in your text, verse 12 again, he arrives in the perfect way that the king is supposed to. On the next day, those four words, crucial On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming out to Jerusalem, took the branches of the Passover trees, Passover, palm trees, and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on the donkey's colt. What do you notice about that verse in verse 15? Compared to verse 16, let's say. In verse 15, they're all capital letters. Now, if you see a New Testament verse with all capital letters, what does it tell you? It tells you that it is Old Testament quotation. So the crowd are quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. They know that this is their king. The king of Israel is riding in a colt of a donkey. I'm going to go and read Zechariah 9, 9. This is what we read earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, endowed with salvation. They don't like that phrase. (laughs) <laughs> they have their idea of what it means salvation for them. That's why they betray him in six days, four days, five days. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 prophesies that their king will ride in on a baby colt, on a baby donkey, proclaiming himself to be their king, and then they bow and they worship him. So catch the scene, if you can go here with me. Jesus gets on a donkey, that colt of a donkey. I'm not sure how old it was. Maybe it was, Jesus was a bit heavy for it. I don't know. He rides down the Mount of Olives across the Kinder Valley into the gate, and what does he find? He finds people everywhere, shouting Hosanna, waving palm branches before him. And they worship Jesus as king, but they have strings attached. And I want you to think about the timing of this event. What's really going on in the city of Jerusalem? It's Passover week. So why is that significant? The, the Passover feast, people, Jews from all over the nation of Israel would migrate into the city of Jerusalem. So who is in the city when Jesus rides in on a colt of a donkey? The entire nation 
is in the city of Jerusalem. So the entire nation is seeing their king, is hearing about their king, riding in, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. So the entire population is there worshiping him. But they have strings attached. And we will see the strings attached in the word Hosanna and in the palm leaves they wave. The theme of Jesus being king in my opinion, is the predominant theme in John chapter 12, verse 12 through 19. And this is, in a sense, his coronation. They are bowing and worshiping him as such. If I can just speak. If you are here today, you probably recognize Jesus as your Savior, as the Son of God, maybe as the Son of Man. But my question for you is... Is Jesus your king? Have you placed the crown on his head as ruler and master over your life? Whether we've done that or not, he is still our king and he is still our ruler. He still demands our servanthood and to serve him and to follow him to whatever means. This week, on Wednesday, because I wrote this part on Wednesday, and I'm sitting there in Panera Bread, and I just asked myself that question, is, Byron, is Jesus your king? Is he truly on the throne to your life? And I said yes, but not every part. If you think about a king, his, what parts of his dominion does he have control over? Every single square foot of his dominion, he is ruler and authority over. That there is not one parcel of land that escapes his authority and his dominion. But so many times in life, what do we do? We say, Jesus, you're my king, and you can have everything in my life but this. This is mine. You can have rule over every other square foot, but this is mine. Question I have is, is Jesus king over your life? And is he king over every part of your life? Is he ruler over your schedule? Is he ruler over your dreams, your future? Is he ruler over your thought life, your children, your grandchildren? Is he the ruler over your job, over every part of your being? The king that we serve, the king that we worship is not just a guy named Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago, but he's a guy named Jesus who is the sovereign ruler and creator of all. He deserves and demands that we worship him without a square foot to ourselves. But then notice what they wave. If you notice the nation of Israel... They wave and they say something that we oftentimes just kind of pass over and just kind of forego and don't really notice. But it really tells us what they are thinking at this particular moment. Because what happens is that Jesus rides in on this uh, colt of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem and the entire nation is there at the Passover meal. So the entire nation and John 12 is bowing the knee before him. And what do they do in a matter of four days? They crucify him. What changed? You know, if you did not know the culture, that seems really weird. That the very people that bow before Him, that are worshiping as their ruler, betray Him in four days. And they yell to Pontius Pilate to crucify Him. What changes? 
You notice what they say in verse 13. And what do they wave? The crowd took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now I want you to notice that verse. If you have your Bible, I want you to look at it in your text. Look at the differences in words. You have some words that are in all capital letters and some words that aren't. You notice that? So some of the words that they say are Old Testament Scriptures and some of them are not. So what they add to the text is Hosanna and even the King of Israel. Their motivation, their motive for really crowning Jesus as their King is revealed in the word Hosanna. The word Hosanna is an Aramaic word named that, that stands for save us. Save us, in other words, now. What do the crowds really want? They want to place the crown of Jesus the crown on Jesus' head so they could, so he could save them now, so they could get something from him. Sometimes we place the crown on Jesus' head so that we can get something from him in return. That's them. They are thinking when their king rides in on this, on this donkey, which is prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, they are saying, Hosanna, save us now, king of Israel. So what do they expect? They expect Jesus to rally the troops in the city of Jerusalem because it's the, the entire nation of Israel is in that city at this particular time. So what do they expect? They, say, they expect their general, Jesus to be a general, to rally the troops and to charge into the palace of Pontius Pilate, overthrow the Roman government and kick them all out. And so that they can have their independence from foreign oppression. That is what they expect. They don't expect him to do what he did. That instead of overthrowing Pontius Pilate and freeing them from Roman rule, he instead rides to the temple, clearing it out one last time. So Hosanna reveals their motives, and him riding to the temple reveals his motives. Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow sin. He did not come to be their conqueror over Rome, but their conqueror over sin. To be our sacrifice, our Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They yell Hosanna, revealing what they really want. And when they don't get it, in four days they crucify Him. What do the crowds get right and what do the crowds get wrong? They get right that Jesus is their king, but they get wrong that Jesus, they think Jesus is there to overthrow Roman authorities and, and, not, and to free them from foreign oppression and not to free them from the chains of sin and death. But then what do they wave? They wave palm branches. Now what is that? A palm branch is a sign, is a, is a sign of military victory. In, in between the New Testament and Old Testament, in, in the 400 years of silence, the palm leaves came to be known as a sign of military victory. So the word Hosanna coupled with palm leaves tells you exactly what their mind is thinking. That Jesus is coming, he's going to rally the troops and overthrow Pontius Pilate, kick the Romans out, and that they would have complete independence just like they had under the Maccabean rule. But Jesus is not there for that. And when Jesus does not do what they want, they crucify him. Let me just ask you the question. 
My first question today for us here this morning was, is Jesus king over your life? Does he have dominion and rule over every square foot of your being? Because he is the sovereign creator of the world, the savior of my soul, the lamb of God that has paid in full the price of my sin. He deserves every square inch of my being for me to submit and to follow him. But the second question I have is this, why do you worship him? Do you worship Him just to get something? Or do you worship with nothing to, nothing, no concerns to reciprocate? Do we truly worship Jesus out of an attitude of love for Him from the heart and the mind and the soul? Or do we worship Jesus with strings attached as our King? You know, this week I was just thinking back upon my life. We, if, if you're wondering if your preacher is perfect, <laughs> just go talk to my wife, okay? I'm far from it. <laughs> I won't tell you. Anyways, I'm about to tell a funny, funny story, and I'm glad I did not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Uh, okay, moving on. All right, let's tell you that one. But this week I just, you know, I, I just thought back upon my life, and I, and I look back at my times in seminary and before, and I look about it and I just say, you know, so many, so for so many years of my life, I really worshipped Jesus as king so I could get something from him. So that I could be in full-time ministry. So that I could be a pastor. So that I could be someone who does what he loves for a living. Friends, oftentimes we're so blind to why we truly worship Jesus. Let us worship Jesus because he deserves it and because we love him and because he loved us. Not expecting anything in return, but that we would lay our crowns before him because he is worthy. He is holy. He has paid for my sin, that he is the Messiah. He is the one that has come to rescue me from the domains of sin and darkness. And he gives it to me free of charge. And he, and he gives, it, gives me salvation, paradise, as a gift. Why? I don't need anything else. But He decides to give me even more. That I am His child. That I'm part of the family and the body of Christ. The, the blessings of Christ are boundless. I do not, I won't ever understand His greatness and His love. Friends, let us not worship our King with strings attached, but let us worship Him because He deserves it. The lesson to us today is who is on your throne? Have you placed the crown on Jesus' head? And are we really worshiping him with pure motives? There are a lot of, a lot of different routes that I can take to wrap up this lesson and kind of application, kind of the theme that I just want you to walk away with is worshiping our king. And really the application I want you to do is just one this week, what I want you to do is I want you to just kind of take some time with the Lord and walk somewhere. Go up on the wildflower trail, the base of mine sand, which is an awesome trail, and just walk with the Lord. And this is what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that Jesus is king over your life, that every square foot of your life is under his rule and under his dominion. And I want you to walk with the Lord and just ask Him very sincerely, Lord, is there any area of my life that is not under your control? Is there any part of my life that is not under your control? 
Let us not be Achan. If you know that story, it's in Joshua chapter 7 and 8. Let us not be Achan. If you remember that story, Achan is just a man that steals plunder for himself in the midst of a battle, and then the nation of Israel suffers great casualties for his treachery, and he is found out. But that one sin, that one act of selfishness, affected the whole. I believe if we have one area that we hinder, that we put up walls, one square foot that we do not surrender to Jesus' dominion, that it will affect all of our lives. If we are not willing to give up our thought life, our schedule, our job, our dreams, then it can affect the whole of our ability to truly follow Jesus with every part. Perhaps this morning that you are far from the Lord, perhaps you still question this God thing and Jesus, trying to understand who He truly is. Perhaps you moved to Huntsville in the last couple of years and you're trying to figure out why there's a church on literally every corner of Whitesburg Drive. Why is that? I'm sure one of you have an explanation for that. Perhaps you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the Messiah and He is King over all. And He gives you eternal life by faith that if you would believe in Him that you shall be saved. What does it say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, then go to Him in prayer and just surrender to Him, asking Him to save you, to redeem your life. If you've never trusted in Him, go to Him and pray and believe and you shall be saved. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning. Um, Lord, I, 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 Lord, Your Word is just so deep and is so rich and it's magnificent that You prophesy something 550 years before it happens and that Jesus arrives into Jerusalem on that very day. Lord, I, the more I preach and the more I live, the more I am convinced that your word is truth. Lord, I pray that it would not become a textbook for us, but it would become sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, that it would just change our lives forever. Lord, I pray that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers. Thank you for this morning. I thank you for all those that are here. It's great to see some faces that have not have not seen in quite some time. I thank you for their return. I thank you for the new people that are here this morning. Pray a special blessing upon them. Thank you for the patrons that I see every week. I love my church family. Thank you for them. I thank you for the grace and love and gospel that you've given to us. May we worship you, serve you with every part of our being. And lift this up in your son's name of Jesus. Amen.